morning, Petaluma. You're listening to KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Uh, happy Hanukkah to our uh, Jewish listeners. Today is the fourth day of Hanukkah, so it's a wonderful celebration this week for us, and we'll talk more about that later. During our second segment today, we'll be hearing from Farhad Mansurian, who is the general manager of Smart Train. They made it to the headlines this morning in the Press Democrat, so I hope he'll have something to say about that. During our first segment, right here with me, is Rabbi Stephanie Kramer, the Associate Rabbi from Congregation Shomrei Torah in Santa Rosa. We imported her all the way in, gave her a visa into Petaluma, and it's great to have you in the studio this morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, so we have, we will be talking a little bit about Hanukkah later, but um want to introduce you to our community. So the usual question that comes to us as rabbis is, well, how did you get into this business? What happened in your life? Was there a moment, a person, uh, all that kind of stuff? So I like to say it all started with a wink. A wink? A wink. So um, I grew up in Houston, Texas at a very large classical reform congregation. Um, and I was going through the traditional steps of being a Reformed kid, um, coming up to bat mitzvah age, and I was sitting on the bima at age 13. On the pulpit. On the the pulpit, um, on the Friday night before my bat mitzvah, and uh, one of the rabbis crossed in front of me as he was making his way to the microphone, and he winked at me. And it was at that moment that I looked out and decided, this is my favorite place. This is just where I want to be. This is just what I want to do. I want to impact the lives of other Jewish generations, just like mine had been impacted thus far. I loved going to religious school. I loved holiday celebrations. I felt like the congregation that I grew up in was really my second home, and I wanted to help make that type of place for other people. So I didn't start with a wink, but I did start with that feeling watching my rabbi when I was growing up, up on the pulpit, with all the same reactions of what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided right around that time, too, that this is the direction. So it's interesting to hear uh, that that's where it started. That's uh, that's great. Uh, when, how long have you been at Shomai Torah? Eight years. Eight since years. 2011. Right. Okay, so you've uh, gone through a lot, and I know you worked really hard last year during our difficult moments in uh, October with the fires, that you really worked hard to serve the community. And uh, I know you've been thanked in many ways, but all, I would also like to thank you for that very dedicated work uh, carrying out the mission that we have uh, to be here in our world and make sure people are safe and fed and clothed and uh, cared for, especially during very difficult times. Thank you so so much. I really, we couldn't have done what we did in taking care of people without 
the infrastructure of the community and everybody coming together. So it was definitely a communal effort, and I could not have been more proud of our volunteers and all of our staff that really, when they weren't feeling safe, they didn't know where to go, they just congregated at Shomri Torah at the congregation to help serve, which is just aligned with our mission. And that there was a, a lot of help to the community, and it can still continues, of course. We're still in the aftermath of those days. Now we get to thankfully give back to other communities. So our community, as well as yours, um, have been coming together, really trying to help others who are are facing or just faced fires. So down in Southern California um, and up north at the Butte Fire. Yes, yes. Um, well, this, this is Hanukkah now, and uh, in the American Jewish community, Hanukkah is uh, the be-all and end-all. Uh, if in surveys of which parts of Jewish life most people attach to or observe in some way, Hanukkah is at the top of the list. And the second place is actually Passover, either by uh, having a Seder, a meal, uh, the traditional meal on Passover, but some kind of Passover observance. You know, it, you and I think, well, Rosh Hashanah is the biggest because that's where most people are in the synagogue. But if we measure people's connections to Jewish life, Hanukkah is at the top of the list. What do you, what do you think about all that? And can you tell us a little bit about Hanukkah and why we even do anything? Well, it's so funny because Hanukkah is such a minor holiday Absolutely. in terms of the rabbis or traditional Judaism. But I think that Hanukkah has become so mainstream in American Jewish culture because of the the loneliness that Jews end up feeling or the hole that Jews end up feeling in December. We, I mean, my four-year-old and my eight-year-old um, – essentially drool over the beautiful Christmas lights that are hanging everywhere. And there's Christmas music playing, and Christmas is just such a big part um, of our lives, no matter what we do. And therefore, it creates this void, and we filled it with Hanukkah. So Hanukkah in America has just become a major holiday. It has become a major holiday. I remember parents calling me when I lived in Florida would call me and complain uh, that their children, the Jewish parents, their children's non-Jewish friends, were, had, they had to go there and all these Christmas decorations and what are they going to do about it and how can we, what can we do about these Christmas decorations all over the place? I, say, I told her at that point, let them enjoy it. Mm -hmm. That it, it can be beautiful. For them, what they learn in their home is even more important and how we handle it in our homes. So I personally, and I hear that from you too, don't try to stop our children from seeing or appreciating the, what might be beautiful lights and stories and gifts and all that kind of stuff, but we have our own. So what, what is Hanukkah about? So I, I want to go back because okay. I, I, I'm remembering a really funny memory from years ago. My son's now eight, and it was probably four or five years ago. In the middle of August, somehow it came up. He was throwing a temper tantrum. Why did Santa not come to our house? 
wasn't even the right time of year, but he was already worried about why Santa wasn't coming to our house in December. So I think it's really pervasive for them. And um, my kids are at different stages. My four-year-old is really excited for all the Christmas stuff other places, and she, she, she enjoys it, as do I, because mm-hmm. I really walk around, and during this time of year, I love the Christmas jingles. I love to see the lights. I love that everybody's in a more giving, happy spirit, and I think that we can all learn from that. Um, Did he survive that Santa didn't visit? He does survive. Yes. Every year, it's amazing. He does does we're, we're into subordinate clauses. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it with Santa Claus, okay? <laughs> yeah. So, um, what is Hanukkah all about? Yeah. I mean, I think that Hanukkah has uh, so many wonderful themes that we can learn from and that we can take from the ancient context and bring into today's, like, 21st century and, and uh, make the holiday relevant. And people use the holiday to teach everything, to take light into dark times, um, to the few against the many, to really stand up for what you actually believe. I think the Hanukkah theme that's speaking most to me this year is that Hanukkah, the story that we tell our kids is really about this miracle of enough oil that was supposed to last for one day, after the temple was destroyed, they came in. They wanted to start to rebuild and rededicate and clean up. And everything was broken. And they lit the oil, which really took um, a lot of hope or faith to light oil, knowing that it was only enough to last one day and hoping that it would last longer. And as the story goes, it lasted for eight days. And that's why we have um, the menorah that has that has uh, eight branches on it, nine for the helper candle to light all the others. But, um, and, and it took all of that courage, but the theme that's speaking to me most this year is really this concept of rebuilding, taking things in our life or places that are broken and really rededicating them and rebuilding them. And that's what we can do, not just during the eight days of Hanukkah, but as a springboard to the rest of the new year. So I want to encourage people this year to look in their own personal lives and in their immediate family and community and also worldwide what around us is broken this year that we can start to heal and put back together and rededicate. Well, the word Hanukkah actually means dedication. So that theme of rededicating is certainly fitting given uh, the name of Hanukkah and Hanukkah, the dedication back in the time of the Maccabees, about 165 before the Common Era, when they rededicated the ancient temple in Jerusalem. And of course, they, you know, they had conflicts in ancient times about this holiday, uh, about the notion of, well, who won the war? Was it God's dedication? God winning the war, I'm sorry, or was it the Maccabees and the power of the Maccabees? And of course, the the symbol of the spiritual peace, the, the uh, menorah, the Hanukkah, won out as a symbol of Hanukkah. But we also know it was the resolve and the dedication of the people uh, to fight against the assimilation of the Hellenists and to fight against the Syrian Greek uh, armies in order to uh, restore the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, and then with later rabbinic Judaism, um, the commandment 
for Hanukkah, you know, some holidays you have so many commandments, and for Hanukkah, you're really commanded to light this menorah and to put it into your windowsill and to really share the celebration of Hanukkah and the meanings behind it by not lighting it early in the morning. All of our holidays start at night, and not lighting it so late at night where people wouldn't see it, but to really find the sweet spot. I think in American culture it would be like 5 o'clock traffic. The evening news. Right, absolutely. But to stick the menorah into the window right at the peak time where people would be passing by and seeing it so that you're sharing this. And I think that that's also a beautiful lesson to Jews in America today, that we shouldn't hide our Judaism. We shouldn't be fearful. Um, but but we should really be proud um, and outwards in our Judaism, even though in today's world that's a little scary. Did you have any people in your community who were afraid of doing this, of putting their menorah or being out there with it? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that every year people are fearful of that and. I don't drive around to go see who does it that way or who doesn't do it that way. Um, You know, but uh, as years pass and anti-Semitism has risen in the last few years, um, I imagine that many people are actually more fearful of doing that. Yes, and I've I've seen that. uh, Although here in Petaluma, uh, the Chabad group had a large gathering at our waterfront. We had a large gathering at B'nai Israel, and people were out there because we are proud to be part of this community part and proud of our heritage as the Jewish people. So that's been very important. So one of the things that Hanukkah brings with us is this famous uh, phrase in Jewish culture called the December Dilemma. <laughs> the December Dilemma. The dilemma of uh, in... Uh, interfaith marriages where there is some observance of Christmas and Hanukkah and uh, all the conflicts that seem to rise to the top during the juxtaposition of Christmas and Hanukkah in the month of December. So, do you have any thoughts on that that you'd like to share? I have lots of thoughts. I bet you do. <laughs> that you'd like to share. I did qualify that. I, I, I appreciate that. So, um, Shomri Torah is made up of about 80% of our younger families are interfaith families. So in my community, oftentimes, I don't even know which parent, if either, is the Jewish parent and which parent is of another religion. And I don't know because I don't ask, because it doesn't actually matter to me. Um, We joke that many of our committees wouldn't have any members if it wasn't for the non-Jewish partners, because they're really dedicated um, to the mission that we serve. So the December dilemma um, doesn't really come into play so much for me. Mm. I enjoy Christmas. I enjoy it being outward. We don't celebrate Christmas in any fashion in my house. My kids have often asked why we couldn't have a tree or even a Hanukkah bush that we decorated. Um, And I just try to explain that that's not our tradition. That's not how I grew up. That's not what we're going to do. However, my house is completely decorated, um, floor to ceiling, really, with Hanukkah decorations. It's much harder to find them. You have to go online. Many stores don't sell them. Um, and, and I know that it's a big dilemma for people in their homes. What do we and don't we celebrate? Throughout the years, congregants have been incredibly embarrassed when I have come over 
during December and seeing that they had a Christmas tree, and it doesn't play into my mind at all. Whatever works in their family, especially since for many, many, many of these families, um, celebrating Christian Christmas has lost most of its religious significance. And I, I mean, I think that's a shame, but it's really become another one of America's holidays that's about getting together with family and celebrating. Um, but I don't know any of them that have full nativity scenes, which would be a much more outward religious symbol than than others. Right. I, I actually agree with you. I think it's always sad what's happened in America uh, with Christmas from the spiritual, the Christian spiritual point of view. I talked to my colleagues in the churches, and of course they right, lament right. they lament that piece too. And uh, the fact that at one point many years ago the Supreme Court declared this Christmas tree and the symbols around it as a secular symbol is really kind of sad that that, that happened. I wouldn't uh, I, I know that uh, some people, the, the Chabad, put menorahs on public property, and I have a great deal of difficulty with that because I think it's government property same. and it's a conflict against uh, with the concept of the separation of church and state because I don't want my menorah to be declared secular. I want it to be, it's a holy symbol. We say after the lighting of the candles, this, this light is holy, it's sacred, it's special. We can't even use it to read a book by, and so it, it's it's something special, and it loses that when it's declared secular in the culture in which I live. So, so you you and I both don't want um, our religious symbols to be declared secular, as well as I'm assuming that you don't want anything to possibly jeopardize that separation of church and state. Right, right. Because it's that's also incredibly important to us for many reasons. Yeah, what, what do you think in terms of the public schools and how the schools handle these holidays? So I am, all, I, I can't speak public schools in general. I can speak to the public school that my son goes to, okay. um, uh, which is in Rincon Valley and Madrone, and they have been amazing with us all the way through from kindergarten on the teachers and the principals and the superintendents have all really, really um, uh, worked tirelessly to make sure that Hanukkah was included and that everything was was studied and looked at in a more academic way, not in as much of a religious way, but in, in, a, in an academic lesson on this is what religion is and this is what other cultures do. And um, I go into my, my child's class every year to celebrate Hanukkah. I'm actually going to preschool and to third grade tomorrow with uh, Sufganiyot donuts um, to celebrate and play dreidel and tell the Hanukkah story. And I think the kids look forward to it every year. It's interesting how much is connected to the teacher. I have a little one in school, too. And in her first grade class, the teacher actually didn't do any holidays. She just showed the Rugrats stuff on the day before winter vacation. And that was it. But there, you walk into the room, and there may have been snowflakes and stuff, but nothing beyond that in terms of the winter holidays. And um, now in her class, they, the whole second grade went to see the Christmas Carol. Mm. And that was a little disturbing, and um, my daughter first didn't want to go. And I went in the office and said, does she get an excused absence? And they're thinking, 
if she doesn't go, does she get an excuse? Yeah, probably gets an excused absence. So it's really conflictual. It's a hard piece. It's really a hard piece. I think it was in kindergarten. We heard that the holiday play that the kindergartners were putting on was something, and then I heard that someone had a part in it, and it was about a tree. And, and of course, my, my heart started to beat, and then I went to see the play, and it had absolutely nothing to do with a Christmas tree at all. Um, so we've had great experiences, um, really just welcoming and warm and inviting. And in the end of it all, it's ultimately what happens in our families and in our homes that our children are getting inside of themselves that make it important, that really make it important. So given all of, uh, what's been happening in America with anti-Semitism and... Uh, what, what's happening in your community with, with that? How are people handling it? Are you addressing it in some ways? What's, what's going on? Um, I think we're addressing it in a few different ways. Um, we, we have this teen and preteen uh, and parent summit that's going on. It's called the Diversity and Inclusivity Summit. It's not just open to our congregation, but it's actually open to teens and parents all over Sonoma County, and we've been drawing huge crowds. The first one was actually on religious diversity. Mm -hmm. Then we've had one on racial diversity. We're about to have a couple on um, uh, LGBTQ, one specifically on trans teens. Um, so we're trying to be as inclusive and diverse as possible, and that really hit that first session on religious diversity hit on some very personal stories that people have been going through in terms of anti-Semitism in the school and in public spheres, things that I, I hadn't heard about um, before that night and things that I had heard about. I always really try when families come asking questions or with incidents or how do I handle this, if I don't immediately know the answer, I, I really call in an expert. And the expert in the field in our area is really Paula Simon, who's worked for many years at the right. um, JCRC. Jewish Community Relations Council. Yes, the Jewish Community Relations Council. Yes, it's so, it is uh, really so complex. In fact, the Petaluma Community Relations Council is preparing a program for the end of January. <coughs> Excuse me on diversity and bias just in the community and how people of color, people with different uh, sexual preference, how people are treated and how we react to each other given the rise of this, the divisions among human beings that we're experiencing uh, in our country. And what, from your point of view, you're uh, a young woman and um, what's happening with the younger generations coming into the into the Jewish community. We all sit around trying to, how are we going to engage younger families uh, in the life of the Jewish community? I hear that from the pastors too, that they're concerned about the age demographics in churches, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you think about all that from your perspective and uh, given your, your age and perspective and the age in which you grew up? Yeah, um, I think it's really geographical in some ways. I when, when I go back and visit the community that I grew up in in Houston, most of the people my age are affiliated mm -hmm. with congregations or churches. In the Bible Belt, it's really 
what church do you belong to, not do you belong to a church or a synagogue or a religious organization. Um, Yet in the Bay Area specifically, we have really low affiliation rates within the Jewish community, but really across many different um, uh, religions. And I think that that's because of the atmosphere of um, not really wanting organized religion, but also organized in a multitude of different ways. There's, there's, we're like really seeing a little backlash in that type of culture. Although I'm always so pleasantly surprised when I scroll through Facebook and look at the young families in, um, inside my congregational community and also other young families. And on Friday nights, they'll take a selfie of celebrating Shabbat and they've lit Shabbat candles and they've done all of these other rituals. So I think that religion is being practiced in homes, even if our affiliation rates are declining. So if people don't like organized religion, maybe we should become more disorganized. Right. That's the plan. That would be the plan, wouldn't it? <laughs> in all that. I hear that all the time. Organized religion, organized religion. So the opposite of it would be disorganized. Or maybe we have to get more creative yeah. and help people to celebrate in their own way or at home or outside of the synagogue walls. We need to go and meet people where they're at um, and help them in the way. And maybe one day they'll affiliate. And maybe they won't, but they'll start, they'll still have very, very rich, full Jewish lives. I remember uh, many years ago, I was sitting with colleagues. I was in Sacramento, and they're all complaining that even that, 25 years, that the younger families and, and people in general weren't coming into the synagogue. And I, I suggested that we go out to them, exactly what you're saying. And it seemed to them like such a radical notion. So we had a lunch and learn session downtown in Sacramento, and there were 150 people showed up to a luncheon. We had a lot of teaching and all that kind of stuff. So there is some wisdom in going out into the marketplace and sharing our ideas and not being afraid to do that. Or just rethinking what it looks like, being creative, not being closed off, and really um, listening to our people and meeting them where they're at. So uh, this Hanukkah season is another opportunity for us to be out. Is there, are there any last second comments or minutes? Uh, we have a little bit of time. Anything else you wanted to add before we finish up? I hope everybody has a really happy, healthy Hanukkah season. And um, spread your personal light. Everybody has a personal light that they have inside of them. And help spread it to others in the community and heal our very, very broken world. We have a broken world, and I agree with you. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for this opportunity. You're very welcome. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. We'll see you in three minutes, where our guest will be Farhad Mansurian of the Smart Train.
Morning, Petaluma. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Here during our second segment, we have as our guest Safar Hadmansurian, the general manager of our Smart Train program. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's great to have you here today. And of course, to have opened the Press Democrat and see right there on the front page. Uh, the smart train this morning. We'll come back to that a, a little bit later. Uh, one or two, the smart train has now become part of our life in uh, in Petaluma and Sonoma and Marin counties, and you've been a big architect of that. How long have you been with the train? Since uh, fall of 2011. Fall of 2011, and it opened in 2017? Correct. Yeah, okay, so... Years of preparation in order to uh, have what we have today. How did you get into the train business? I mean, when I was little, I liked to play with trains. I got that. But how did you get into this? Well, I'm a civil engineer by training. And I work for Marin County Department of Public Works. Uh And I was their public works director in 2011. When Smart Board of Director approached Marin County Board of Supervisors to see if they can borrow me for a few months. So we can figure out what's going on with the smart train. And that led into um, them deciding to hire me, and I joined um, smart at that time. When I was in Marin County, uh, I was also running the Marine Transit District. And so very familiar with transit world, familiar with building stuff. And um, here we are, celebrating and having wonderful time with everybody in Marina and Sonoma. So this has been a stress-free job over all these years? Absolutely. It's all public service. It's all saying thank you, no complaints. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. Wow. Wow. So uh, what's what's your take on the status of the train right now? Ridership, uh, you know, all, all of the component pieces. It's a complex system. You know, it's very complex system, and, and I want to take a minute, if you don't mind, and, and report to everybody what smart train system is, because okay. the credit goes to the citizens and taxpayers of Marina and Sonoma. This is your train. You've paid for it. You continue paying for it. Over 70% or just about 70% of Marine and Sonoma residents in 2008 said, this is what we want. We're sick and tired of being on Highway 101 parking lot. So what is it that we built? I think it's important for you to know that. So first of all, you have uh, one of the cleanest and quietest uh, diesel engine train in the, in the world. You know, this is built by um, Somitomo Corporation of America. It's a Japanese technology. Uh, these cars were manufactured in just outside Chicago, and they are the most friendly environmentally friendly vehicles you can you can buy that use um, uh, diesel engine. Uh, they are fully compliant for people with wheelchair and strollers. Uh, we ordered 14 of them before in 2010 and bought four more of them. So that's what that vehicle is, the, the beautiful green one that you see go up and down. But what we were able to build in four years, and that's why we won many national awards, we rebuilt 43 miles of tracks from ground up. Everything was replaced. 
We build you 10 stations. We uh, build an entire rail operation center, which is near Sonoma County Airport. Um, and one of the things we build is called positive train control. This is the technology that did not exist, and the United States Congress has mandated every rail agency in the in United States by end of December 2018 have this technology that would prevent derailment and some of the head-on collisions. And we spend $50 million having that technology uh, when we opened our doors. We were among the first in the nation who had done that, and we are very, very pleased because our board of directors was very clear, safety, 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 and no money was spent in that. But that was the result of the, that, particularly that accident on the East Coast, uh, Baltimore to, uh, to New York, something like that? No, yeah. the actual accident was in Los Angeles, where so a freight train and a passenger train happened to be on the same track and mm -hmm. had a headlong collusion because some operator was texting and did not pay attention to signals. The one you're referring to was as a result of going too fast around the curve right. and then missing it. But let me go on and tell you, we also rebuild, you know, people in public works, my life, they finish an entire lifetime and maybe they replace one bridge, maybe two if they're working in a huge agency. Well, you're smart folks. We replaced and rebuilt 27 bridges as part of what we were doing. And we put in fiber optic throughout the system where we have given those access to those to uh, government agencies and school districts. So they can use some of our fiber and they can get internet free for them. So again, I want to go back to positive train control because every taxpayer in Marina Sonoma, you should be very, very proud of us being the leader in the nation, and now we're helping many other railroads um, to, to do the same thing. Yesterday, front page, front page article in San Francisco Chronicle was naming the agencies in California and the Bay Area who are uh, at fault uh, or being told by federal government that they are not going to meet the deadline. And here we are, a small rail agency with some of the best and most sophisticated safety. It doesn't mean accidents won't happen. It just means we're, you know, we can do a lot about it. Well, thank you for that. That's really important. What's ridership like now, and what's, what's that been? You know, we're very happy. We opened up our doors to our passengers in August, and as of today, we are carrying just about 920,000 people. Uh, about uh, just about 60, over 65,000 bicycles and thousands of people who use wheelchair have been coming to us. Let's go back to the 900, over 920,000 people. Where do you think these 920,000 people were before? They were probably on the road. Exactly. Or on a bicycle on a longer they ride. They were somewhere. So they were either on the freeways or on the local roads, right? right? These are not new people. And, you know, our board and our staff is very, very pleased that we've been able to take that many people off local roads and the freeways. And this is our first year. You know, we're like a brand new business. We're just getting started. And we're very excited about what is ahead. You're meeting financial projections? What's that been like? They're very good. Our chief financial officer is very happy. 
you know, what we budgeted in terms of the revenue we bring in, we've exceeded that by a little bit, which is good. Mm -hmm. Every time you meet your budget, you've done it's, great. It's good. Um, you know, it's good when you meet the budget. That's a big step. That is Correct. a big step. Correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things in the news a lot has been the uh, unfortunate accidents that have happened along the rail line. So, I, and I'm aware that you can't go into the details of that, and that's fine. But just in general, what what, what are your responses to that? I mean, for, as a just an outsider, a citizen of the area, you know, wh why are people walking along the railroad tracks? I mean, wh what are they doing there, and how do we help stop this kind of thing? You know, I'm so happy you asked that. It's really up to every single one of us to make this area safer. So for 60 years, 6-0, we did not have a train service. And we, we have generations who have never grown up around train. Some of us older folks, you know, were grown up around train and understand how serious they are, how big they are. Mm -hmm. And they don't stop on a dime. But some of our younger generations, they haven't grown up. So it's up to us to remind them. Every time you see a track, assume there is a train coming. Don't try to beat it. I mean, if, if we look at our video footages of our security cameras, I am shocked. You know, people with strollers, after the gates come down and it's making noise, ding, 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 mothers with strollers go under the arms, try to beat the train. Bicyclists who go around the gates try to beat the train. And, you know, one of our recent accidents a gentleman driving a truck uh, just went through all the gates that were down, broke every single one of them, mm -hmm. and collided with the train. So, you know, train, uh, we go up to 79 miles an hour, but even if we're going 10 miles an hour, it takes a long time for such a heavy piece of equipment to come to stop. Those few seconds that you think you might save, trust me, it is not worth your life. Right. So take another minute. Take a deep breath. Think about your kids and your parents. But we all need to teach everybody that. You know, we now have a new way of commute, and we need to understand that safety is paramount for us. Um, so what can we do is teach each other. I think it's important. It's, it's, in my mind, it's hard for me to grasp why a mother with a stroller would go around the gates, uh, why a car would try to sneak in there. It just... Uh, it's mind-boggling for me to think about that, but it's happens, unfortunately, and it, all of us as citizens need to work together to try to prevent those things from happening. Absolutely. This is your train. Right. This is what we build for you. You own it. It is your resource. And every time there is an accident, not only we have a tragedy that somebody's son or daughter or husband or a father died, or mother, or whatever that you know um, that that deceased person is, but it stops the entire network. We operate on a single track, so thousands of passengers on other trains are stuck at times for four hours mm -hmm. until the police comes and the fire comes and the coroner comes, and so it's a big deal, right. you know. And and nothing replaces a life. So please, it's okay to be five minutes late. And, and how about not rushing it? Right, absolutely. And uh, I hope everybody heard uh, those that appeal because it's really an important one. So for Petaluma, there were a number of uh, uh, issues that came up as the train was uh, was developing. 
Uh, one of them was the sounding of the horn in, that was close to houses close to the railroad track, uh, the noise factor that came in. So what, what's, what's the, what are the details right now? Some intersections are no horn, others, others are. How is that working, particularly in Petaluma, and I assume it holds along the entire 43 miles? Great question. So, you know, we are regulated by federal government. Actually, our, um, the agency that we report to, it's called FRA, Federal Rail Administration. They're like the FAA that oversees the airlines. FRA oversees heavy railroads like us. Um, we have to blow our horn quarter mile before we get to a crossing and then go through the crossing and continue blowing the horn. So that's the job that we have. There is one exception, however. If certain additional gates and measures are installed at those crossings, the local jurisdiction, let's say in this case city of Petaluma, can go through a federal process, and once they complete that federal process, then that area is designated as quiet zone, which means we no longer will blow the horn unless we see an emergency. But let me tell you, um, when we see an emergency, it's often too late because by the time our engineer visually sees somebody in the middle of track, it's two seconds away, and blowing the horn then doesn't matter. So right now what you see is in the city limit of Petaluma, unless there is an emergency or there is a malfunction of equipment, we don't blow the horn. However, as soon as we cross the Petaluma River, that is outside the city limit, and those crossings are not part of the quiet zone, and we have to blow our horn per federal regulations. Mm -hmm. So that's why you hear some of that. Now, also remember, in addition to the passenger rail service, we also operate, now we, another government agency, and a private firm is operating freight services. They operate at night, and they go through the same process. So sometimes you hear them at 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning, it's the freight service mm -hmm. that is going through the town up north or through Highway 37, and then they connect with the other national networks. Okay, because it's all because the smart trains on a single track, right? Correct. So that's highly regulated in terms of accessibility. And are you in charge of the accessibility? Is that how that correct? Works? Yeah. Correct. So okay. the railroad is owned by Smart, uh -huh. and we basically what we call we dispatch the freight. We let them know when they can come in, or they let us know, hey, we have a load in Petaluma, we have a load in Windsor. This is where we want to go. This is our request for basically entering your airspace or your mm -hmm. rail space. And we schedule them to come during the time where passenger service is not in operation. We cannot have freight and passenger operate at the same time because we have positive train control, remember what uh -huh, we talked right. about, uh -huh. and the freight does not. Mm. They have a deadline to meet that and they're working hard towards that. But until such time that everybody has that technology that will prevent head-on collusions, we basically have a firewall. They operate when there is no passenger rail service. Hmm. Okay, that's an important piece of information because I've heard various people say they hear horns and they thought there weren't supposed to be horns. So it's important uh, to have that clarified for our community uh, to be able to know that. And so our... Um, 
sometimes we sit at intersections and I wonder at times how the traffic lights are coordinated uh, with the gates and with the trains. Sometimes this, the train is sitting in the station, but the gates in front of it are still down, you know, the intersections close by. How, what's, is that always being refined? Is that completed? What, what's happening with that particular piece of it? So, first of all, we, our engineers, spend yeah. probably two years working with all the public works departments of various cities to make sure our signal system and the local municipality signal system are working together. And that was very difficult because we have the latest technology and some of the jurisdictions did not, but, you know, they upgraded and we've done that. The reason sometimes you see the gates are down and no train is coming, because the train is approaching at a higher speed, and by having the gates down, we're trying to clear that intersection. Now, sometimes the gates are not working, and that's just fact of life. You know how you go through an intersection and you see the traffic signals flashing red? That is a safety system that says, hey, I'm not functioning very well, so I'm going to go red on all sides to force everybody to stop, right? Mm -hmm. In the train world, when there is something, the gates come down and basically block. So you, you now don't have the vehicles and the train running at each other. But, for example, in Petaluma, um, everything is very well coordinated with Petaluma Public Works Department. And we have very, very difficult time at Washington and D Street because there is just so much happening. Mm -hmm. There are two pedestrians areas, then you have two cross streets, and you have big trucks making a right turn and the train coming. And it is one of the areas where we're constantly refining. We have coordinated with the city. They're a great partner to work with. And we're constantly refining that. And as soon as the system detects anything, you know, then the system goes into the more safety. Right. In other words, kicks the gates down because they don't know. The system is thinking, I am sensing something. I want to go into safe mode. And so that's one of the areas that is very, very challenging for us. But we'll continue working with our partner, City of Petaluma. Right. I think uh, actually my personal experience and are in those two on East Washington and B Street there. It's, it gets complicated at times and sometimes a long wait in order to get through the, the intersection. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I always wondered how it was coordinated because at one point when the train was sitting in the station, the gate in front of it was still down, even though it was sitting there for however long it sits at a station, let's say 60 seconds or 90 seconds, and everybody's sitting there and waiting. And so I, I know there have been some changes in that over the life of the, uh, of the smart train. So I right. understand it's complicated and hoping that it will get resolved in some way where the flow is easier. But obviously, I can agree with you. Certainly, safety is the... Uh, is ultimately the most important piece of it. And um, and for Petaluma, the future rail station, what's the, what's the status of, of uh, Corona up there? Any, any immediate plans? Uh, no immediate that? plans. Uh, having a second station in Petaluma is something SMART very much likes to have uh -huh. once we have the financing. Uh, we're looking forward to finding the money so we can build the second station. Petaluma has been a very, very strong market for SMART. 
uh, both in um, arrival and departure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it is very very important for us to work towards the second station, and we're doing everything possible to fulfill that promise. Yeah, and it must be frustrating. I know you just ordered that new equipment; it was delivered damaged uh, and put a delay. What part of the was that adding additional trainings? Was that was the the equipment that was coming in? So the four vehicles you're talking about is, um, you know, from the time we order a train set until it arrives, uh, you're looking at two and a half years minimum. Mm-hmm. These are made one at a time. Mm-hmm. They're like a good Italian suit. <laughs> you know, you just don't go and get them off the shelf. <laughs> so we have to have patience. Uh, they were shipped from Japan and put together and they arrived in Georgia, and then they're put on a huge freight line, which is carrying whatever it is, two, three, four miles worth of merchandise. And somewhere in Missouri or, um, or Kansas, we're not sure, um, that freight train was run into by something else, and as a result, our four vehicles that were part of that were damaged. These are not structural damage. These are damages. Um, uh, to their bumpers, so there is no effect on safety or anything. But nevertheless, we're spending taxpayers' money, so we rejected those train as uh, being the train we ordered. And the manufacturer has agreed that at no cost to taxpayers, they're replacing it at their cost. But it's going to take three, four months. Uh, what were we going to use those for was to add additional trips. We already are uh, very crowded in some of our morning commutes. Some of the evening commute, it's shoulder-to-shoulder, standing only. And we were using these to add more fleets into the system Mm -hmm. and also get ready for Larkspur and Windsor, where we need more trains. So a few more months. Nobody said it's easy running a train agency. (laughs) And, you know, every day we have one new um, challenge that we need to deal with. That's life in many ways itself, right? There's always a challenge. Absolutely. So on the front page of the Press Democrat this morning, I read about the uh, land purchase uh, next to the railroad station, right? It's the one right next to the area, right next to the railroad station in Santa Rosa by a developer. So how do you feel about that? Is that a a positive thing for the smart train or uh, what's it like? Well, you know, uh, it, it is very positive. Our board of directors have been huge supporter of trying to build more housing. We're very sensitive to the local zoning. We're, we're very sensitive to the existing neighborhoods. So while you're sensitive to all of those, the facts are um, we need more housing. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems Smart has, just want you to know, is retention. You know, from the time we hire an engineer or a conductor or a signal technician, it takes us months to train them and you know, have them start working for us only to lose them six, seven, eight months later, which we have many, many people because they cannot afford to live here. Even though our salaries are very good and very generous, but, you know, million-dollar homes, $800,000 homes is not something that you can do. So so it's hitting us close to home. We're just like the teachers and the firemen and the public works and, you know, cops. Everybody you hear has that problem. So we're very pleased, and our board of director approved this yesterday, to sell this property to a local developer whose, whose vision is to work with City of Santa Rosa and build hundreds of units of homes right next to a train station. 
which is the kind of thing we need to do is, you know, here we're giving you an alternative to 101. And if we can have the appropriate housing at the appropriate location, then the combination of these two can be tremendous. Um, in Petaluma, is what's, what's access? When you were building the train, did you measure accessibility, walking accessibility of uh, apartment units and housing? And is there any property available for that kind of thing in Petaluma? Yes. For example, at the Petaluma downtown station, right behind the museum, Smart owns that property. Uh-huh. And so, you know, that's one of those things that we want to do. Smart owns many properties that our board of directors very carefully goes through. What do we want to do with this? And our aim is not just to sell and make money. Our aim is to sell it to the right person who wants to do the right thing for the community. And that's what we're looking forward to. Right. So it's amazing how many of these public issues are tied into the housing question, which is so, so huge for our county before the fire, even more so after the fire, getting uh, affordable housing here for us, uh, for our workers to be able to live of all streams, uh, uh, working in all different kinds of environments. So indeed, it's a challenge. And I was happy actually to see about that sale. I, I was up in that station. I can picture the lot in front, you know, looking out there, and that would be a great place for uh, housing and accessibility and would feed, be a feeder for the train, too, which is a, a positive thing. Correct. So um, why is this your passion? You know, public, public service. About it, it's, it's a, it, feels a, it feels very, like a big thing for you. It is. I mean, I'm a civil engineer. I'm a public servant, uh-huh. you know, and it, it is so rewarding to be a public servant. When people say thank you, that's all it matters. You uh-huh. know, I'm on the train a lot. Uh, just to say hello, just to ask people what is working, what is not working. And when people give me testimonies about how their life has changed, now they have an additional hour a day to spend with their family where before they were parked on a Highway 101, right, right. that's all the reward. So, Well, I would like to say thank you. Thank, thank you. you for being here today, and thank you for bringing uh, Smart Train to Sonoma and Marin Counties and serving our community. And We appreciate your presence with us today. Thank you for having me, and please, safety, safety, safety. I got that message, and I hope our listeners get that message, too. Uh, Our next program is on December 20th. We'll be listening to Father Bill Donahue from St. Vincent's Catholic Church and Catherine Reinhardt, who is a Sonoma County historian, uh, will be with us for that segment of our program. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM.
and be the change and break our chains to reach beyond what we invented.